You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxon. True False Weekend is finally here and I will be vacating the studio in a big fat hurry as soon as the show is over so I can make it to my first movie of the day. On last week's show, I chatted to three local fans of the fest, so I thought it would be only fair this week to invite some out-of-towners onto the show to talk about why they come to the fest year after year. So coming up in the second part of the show, we have documentary filmmaker Andrew Sherburn from Iowa City and Patrick Kinney from the non-profit cinema organization Filmstreams in Omaha. But first, we cast our gaze just one week out and a continent away to next weekend's Como Africa Fest 2019, The Power and Promise of Women. And we welcome to the show Linda Schust, Executive Director of Jabberwocky Studios. Welcome to the show, Linda. Thank you, Diana. We may be joined by a member of the Mizzou African Graduate and Professional Student Association, Transport Depending. So, uh, so Veli Tipe may be here. He's the current president of the association, but if he doesn't make it, then you and I can pretty much cover all the bases. So this is the third year for Africa Fest. Tell us how it all started. Well, it started... Two years ago, now this being the third year, and we were having African um, dancing classes at our studio, and I became involved with working with some of the English language learning students in Colombia, and we got the idea that it would make sense, especially in our current society, to do something to help welcome African immigrants and refugees, of whom there are a lot in Colombia, into our community and to try to sow positive feelings and information about that population through the arts. Is there one particular area of Africa or country that tends to send more or we have more people here in Colombia or is it really a whole diaspora of African people that are here? We have people that represent a lot of the different African countries but primarily um, there are two populations. There are the population that come here as refugees or immigrants that come looking for work and a better life. They tend to be more from East or Central African countries and then we have a large population of students and grad students on campus. And they tend to be more from West African countries, particularly from Nigeria. Right. In fact, I heard somewhere the other day that Nigerians represent the most highly educated immigrant population in the country. Hmm. So it's really a dichotomy of the people that are here. Right. So, so tell us a little about Jabberwocky Studios and what your mission is, and then you know, kind of how that fits into the wider mission of Africa Fest. So our mission is to use the arts as a way of building inclusion and equity in the community. So, and we found lots and lots of different ways that that can happen. And so one of the ways that we found is through hosting this African cultural festival every year. Um, that kind of moves us towards our overarching mission and it allows us to bring a lot of people into that mission that we don't normally reach through our normal daily operations the rest of the year. And so what are the programs you offer at Jabberwocky? We offer in-studio programming and primarily that's focused on dance, although we do have art classes and we also have vocal instruction. Um, most of our dance classes are breakdancing and hip-hop classes and we do that, I think, because it's a readily accessible art form and it appeals to boys and girls because we try to really be as inclusive 
inclusive as we possibly can be. And then we do lots and lots of outreach activities through collaborations with the different organizations around town. We especially collaborate with organizations that reach minority and low-income populations. Uh, We're currently providing programs for youth that are incarcerated either here in Columbia or in Fulton at two of the state's facilities. Um, We provide weekly programming at Oakland Middle School to English language learners there who are predominantly African, although there are also some people from the Middle East that are also in, in that population. And then we do lots and lots of free performances around town every year, including at Family Fun Fest and Rock the Community and lots of other places like that. And it's, it's mainly through the medium of dance. That's pre- predominantly what your your main programs are. You said you have some arts, visual right. art. I mean, yeah. painting so, and that kind like of Like when art. we go to Oakland, we're doing visual arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also just well, six weeks ago now, started our STEAM programming. That's science, technology, engineering, art, and math. I'm actually trained as a scientist. So we're working with local artists who are teachers. I'm the science piece. And then we're working with a wonderful man named Charles who runs the STEM bus for the STEM Alliance. And he's coming in and doing the technology piece of it. So that we have a weekend programming and um, broken down into units. And so that way we get to integrate all those different aspects of learning to try to support students who maybe are at risk or are come from a demographic that maybe is not as well served by the Columbia Public Schools as some other demographics. Have you seen the excellent Dance Your PhD videos online? I, no, I haven't. It, it's just this fantastic program where you can, you can dance your PhD and there's a national competition every year and you can, uh, they have different categories. You can win in for physics, you can win for chemistry on biology. And so it's just using the medium of dance to tell a story in the same way that so much uh, science is told well through the form of, of visual arts. Uh-huh. Um, you can also tell it through the medium of dance. I'll so have to look for them. So it's PhD. like an interpretive dance of what you right. did for your PhD yeah. research. They are awesome. <laughs> I, wanna, I have to see that. Yeah. Just Google dance your PhD. It's fantastic. Well, we should tell Bailey about that because he's writing his thesis right now. He, well, absolutely. <laughs> if it's, if, he's in chemistry, right? So yeah, he's in chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful thing. I see it every year. In fact, this this year's competition just happened. So they were just announcing it on the news. It's in it was in the newspapers a couple of weeks ago that the person that won was a physics. Uh, well, the one that I saw, I think it was the overall prize, was a physics PhD student, and was, was awesome. I still don't really know what it what his PhD was about, but it was wonderful to watch. <laughs> it was, it was about dance. cells and how cells move together. And uh, so, was it just him, or did he have choreographed oh, for a had group? Choreographed. Oh. And oh, there was a little song that went with it, and uh, it was about it's about ten minutes long. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I had to look for that. Yeah. So, what is your background as a scientist? Uh, my degree is in cellular and developmental biology. Then you would, so. you, yeah, you probably love this this year's yeah, winner. Yeah, I probably would enjoy it. <laughs> and how did that? How did you get from there to running a, a, a kind of a dance and arts program? So, I mean, I loved science. I loved doing research, but I don't. I think it didn't really. I think the thing that was missing for me was kind of the social interactive piece. And then I was in Boston. I was at MIT. And then when I became pregnant for my daughter, first of all, I wanted to stay home because I was an older mom and I didn't want to miss the experience. And second of all, with what I was making as a postdoctoral fellow and what it would cost for daycare in Boston, we actually would have taken a hit for me to continue to work. So I thought, well, that's a good excuse to take some time off. Um, And then from there, it was just, you know, kind of one thing after another. I was looking for a job that I could do when my kids were little. So I started teaching school. And then from there, I became more aware of some of the disparities that exist. Also, when we adopted my youngest child in Africa, I 
living with an African-American child gave me a whole new perspective. And then I went on to, my kids were really involved in theater, so I was on the board of directors at Pace for a while and realized that I really liked the outreach stuff we were doing there. And so that was how I determined that I would probably try to start my own nonprofit where we could use arts for the specific point of doing outreach or building equity. And then, of course, everyone in my family advised me that I know absolutely nothing about art, uh, which is true. And so I said, yeah, but there are a lot of people that do know about art. And it's I've been really lucky that I've found those people. And they're people who believe in our mission. And um, I just get to interact with such wonderful people every day now. So... I mean, when I, and I don't know a huge amount about Jabberwocky, but when I think of you, I think of you as kind of a dance place, primarily. But you, but you have no background in, in dance at all. So oh. what, how, how did dance become the foremost offering that Jabberwocky has? Well, when we started out, it was pretty loosey-goosey. And actually, I was lucky. People would come to me and say, oh, I have this great idea. I want to teach this kind of dance or that kind of dance. And so the reaction was always, uh, okay. Let's let's see if, you know, build it and see if they come. And so our most successful programming has been our dance programming. And I think maybe that's because um, while there are lots of great dance studios in town, our our dance styles that we offer are kind of niche niche styles. And also because of our tuition uh, waiver policy, which is that anybody who qualifies for free reduced lunch, which is 40 percent of the kids in Columbia, uh, can take classes for free. So we're able to bring in people that might not be able to access dance instruction at some of the other studios around town. Is it exclusively for children and young people or do you have adult classes too? Oh, we have quite a few adult classes actually. Yeah, I think our youngest, most semesters our youngest student is five or six and then we've had one diehard grandma who's 63 who's been dancing with us for probably three or four years. Yeah, so we have, it's a wide age range. Is she breakdancing? She's not. She well. She was doing African dancing, and um, and now she's doing tap dancing. Good job. So that's fantastic. Do you have like a dance studio? Where are you physically? We're on uh, the business loop, actually, kind of catty corner across Providence from uh, Hickman High School. Okay. So our building is one of the three buildings that makes up that Carpet One kind of little square there um so carpet one has two of the buildings and then we're leasing the third the little tiny building that faces sideways toward grand street so we have one big well not big we have one large dance area and then we have a little tiny computer room for our steam programming and a little tiny art room and i've moved my office into the storage room now which is quite cozy (laughs) no windows (laughs) no windows no there's always a, a, a premium in offices. So, okay, so Africa Fest ties into Jabberwocky Studios through this, uh, mainly through the kind of dance program of people coming to you and, and that um, more of the African community being interested in, in using those services that you offer. So I was going to ask Vele if he was here. Maybe you can answer this. I guess one of the things that you want to do with the Africa Fest is dispel myths and dispel stereotypes. So what do you find are the stereotypes that Americans have about Africa? Well, I think I can t- I can speak from experience because we adopted my youngest daughter in Kenya. And so I probably knew probably what the average American knows about Africa when we went there. And I probably know a little bit more than that now. And I think so. I think one of the big missed facts is that Africa is an incredibly huge and incredibly diverse place. 
I mean, not only that there are so many different countries, but even within each country, there are so many different cultures and so many different languages. So when we were in Kenya, we found out that there are actually 43 languages are spoken in Kenya alone. I think a lot of people don't really understand the history of colonialism in Africa and the impact that has on present day Africa. And I think when people think of Africa, they think of AIDS and they think of poverty. And those are both conditions that exist in Africa. And here in America. And here in America. And in both cases, that's not the whole story. So there's a lot more, there's a lot more um, to it. And so I think those are some of the things that we're trying to, you know, kind of dispel. And just the idea that we, yes, we have, we have differences between Americans and Africans, but we also, I mean, the major we share the same humanity, and right. um, and that's the most important thing. I am delighted that we have just been joined by Veli Tipe in the studio. Welcome, Veli. Thank you for being here. I know you've got a busy morning and you're teaching at the university, and I appreciate you taking the time to come here. <laughs> catch uh, your breath. I'm actually trying to catch my breath. I'm okay, you, you can catch your breath. Yeah. So going back to what you, what you were saying, Linda, I was looking it up because I, I wasn't sure the answer to this. Africa is a continent of 54 countries, and of course there is not just one African culture. There are thousands. There are thousands of different distinct ethnic groups across the continent, 2,000 languages. But prior to the Europeans turning up, it is estimated that Africa had up to 10,000 different states and autonomous groups. So just a hugely diverse continent, probably one of the, if not the most diverse continent on, on earth. So when you have an event called Africa Fest, like how do you do justice to this incredible continent. Well, we clearly can't do justice in one year or even 10 years. Um, so, But because we involve local people in a lot of it, we end up, we at least try to end up representing the cultures of people that are actually here in Colombia. But it's something to be, uh, that we need, we need, that we're careful of. We, we're aware of it. In fact, we're having a pre-event at Orr Street Studios this year and we want to have African foods. And so we thought intentionally about including foods, at least in general, that there are some from North Africa where the cuisine is actually, it's Mediterranean cuisine like you get in Greece or Italy. South Africa, which is where Bailey's from, and I have a surprise for him, he doesn't know what it is. <laughs> and, um, and then some Nigerian foods from West Africa and then some Kenyan foods from East Africa. So at least it's like a smattering of the different types of food. I mean, not only are they affected by the, the, the location and the climate in the area, they're also affected depending upon which European country colonized the different areas. So it's, it's a very complicated picture just right. for the food. I think when I look at Africa and I think about the colonial impact, you know, what, what is important is that none of these countries were countries that existed. We created the lines on the map and they weren't put in the right places. And, you know, Africa is, is a, a continent of, like we just said, thousands of small countries that aren't defined by our Western geopolitical uh, view of the world as countries, but really to uh, an African. I mean, Africa is a continent of much smaller geographical areas than we perceive it as. Is that, is that right, Veli? Oh, yeah, I agree. Um, and it's also rich. Uh, I believe it's one of the richest continent when uh, when it comes to actually cultural diversity. Right. Um, like Linda said, uh, different countries in in Africa were colonized by a different group 
from Europeans. So that's why there's a lot of dialects. And the beauty in that people still sustain their own native tongues. Um, I remember in South Africa, there's this artist, uh, he couldn't speak English, but he told uh, the media that I speak English the way a European or a white person speaks my own mother tongue, mm. which that's very profound. Um, yeah. So with Africa Fest, we're trying to actually make it an annual event every year. It's been growing tremendously. We actually appreciate some of the sponsors we've got just to make sure that uh, it increases inclusion and diversity within the city. Yeah. Right. So tell us a little bit about what you have. So Africa Fest is next weekend. There's a, a meet and mingle on Thursday night. That's kind of a precursor. And the big event is Friday evening at the Missouri Theatre. Correct. Tell us about the schedule for Friday evening. Um, okay. And also, I should add that Friday morning, we're also the visiting artists are going to be going to two of the middle schools and doing assemblies and classes for the students at the middle schools, too, because... Uh, the entertainment is one aspect, but the education is another aspect that we really, that's an integral part of our, the fest. So for Friday evening, um, do you want to do the rundown, Bailey, or should I? Oh, yeah. Um, so early hours of the morning, we actually go to the schools, uh, Smithton High Middle School. Middle School in Oakland. In Oakland, uh, where we actually will our guest uh, performers, uh, Ayodele, would actually be at the schools to teach the, the kids how to actually dance. And it's not only about dance. That's the nice thing. Uh, there's this phenomenon that white people cannot dance. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hang on. White men. White men cannot dance. I think women Definitely. Can... <laughs> definitely. I, I agree with I that. I think women can dance just fine. <laughs> yeah, so it's not only about the movement. It's actually about understanding, listening to the beat moving with the beat synchronizing with the beat so they'll be teaching them how to harness that uh sense of listening to the beat rather than doing the movements i'm um, sending my husband along <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's the other another part would be uh some of our, um, our members in the African uh, Graduate and Professional Student Association at Mizzou, they'll be giving presentations to kids uh, just to teach them a lot of, because there's a lot of similarities and differences between uh, African countries and America, per se. Uh, so we'll also actually be sharing our culture with them, making them understand that we are one. So we'll be teaching that at the schools. And then um, there'll also be like a, a dance, a small dance uh, group from um, uh, Mizzou. They're actually undergraduates. Uh, they call themselves Made in Africa. Uh, so they'll be also teaching kids how to dance. Another component uh, with that is to actually raise awareness so that they know that as much as the world has segregated Africa or any other part of the world, ultimately we are all the same. Like for example, the smallest um, example I'll give to, to kids when I go and teach them is uh, when you're black, you're white. Uh, because when your skin peels off, that layer under your skin is, is white. And if you're white, when you have a wound, your, butt, your blood actually clocks. It forms a black layer. So you're also black. So they'll be like, wow, we didn't think of it like that. So 
Hold on, we to... all we all come from Africa. Oh yeah. Africa is the birthplace of Homo sapiens, and we all we're all African. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of us have, have just blanched a little bit over <laughs> right. the millennia. Yeah. yeah. So and then uh, during the day, um, so the the teaching at the schools would be from the morning to till the day. And then at the evening, that's where we would have the event, the actual gala performance. The doors open at six. For the, six for the art show. For the art show. So we have a Nigerian. Um, Sculpture, who would be actually uh, presenting his work at the theater before the show starts. And that's Raki Basharan. Yeah. And, and he, that, will, he will be here. Yeah. He, he's here. Okay. Yeah, yeah he's here. And he is a graduate of, the, of Mizzou. He got oh. a, his MFA at Mizzou. Oh, yeah. Mm. That's amazing, too. Mm. Uh, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's the thing. We try to include Africans and also have the connection because the university has also played an integral part in giving back not only to the community here in the Midwest, but throughout the world because it has that collaboration with various partners around the world. So you have you have the Nigerian sculptor Raki Basharan and his work. You have Ayo Delhi, an all-female drum and dance group from Chicago that will be here for that event. You have a fantastic vocalist, Ina Cook from Madagascar, who lives in St. Louis and has been on this show and in this studio. We love Ina. She's amazing. And also Simone Sparks, who's a Columbia singer. Uh, you have the Christi- Redeem Christian Church Choir, the Maiden Africa Dancers that you mentioned from the Mizzou African Student Association. And then you have some speakers too, Dr. Tola Pierce, Judith Mutamba and Gloria Mangoni. And what are they speaking about? Uh, it's actually topics dear to their hearts, uh, hence the theme, the power and promise of women. Okay, uh, It's all about women empowerment. So I wouldn't dwell much to what they'll speak about, but I know definitely for sure that it's very powerful. And Linda, the Ayodhya dancers, they're a, a powerful group of women, very dramatic and interesting to watch. Correct. So yeah. tell, tell us quickly about the Ayodhya dancers. So they're actually... Um their artistic director, I think, is is uh, African. The rest of them are African-American women. And this is one of the things we try to bring out in the fest is how much African culture has informed American culture via the African-Americans that are here. Um, and also to show, I think, depending on how, if you're African-American, depending on how you came to be here, you may have had your culture completely ripped from you and not everybody is privileged like I am to be able to travel to Africa so this is a way also of us bringing that little piece or that little vision of like this is where I came from this is the culture that this may be part of the culture that I came from to people that are living here that are African-Americans that maybe don't have the opportunity to travel. And so these women embrace both parts of that, the African and the they're African-American women who have learned authentic African dances. And they're just, you know, they're out there performing. And it, traditionally, I think in Africa, drumming is more of a man's uh, role. But these women are doing the dancing and the drumming. And just like women everywhere, they're just doing it and making it work. If you go online and, and Google Ayodeli dancers, they are a powerful amazing group of women so that's going to be fantastic to see that on the stage at the Missouri Theatre. Linda how can people get tickets for the show? They can get tickets either at the door Um, we'll be accepting cash check or credit cards or if you want to make me feel good that we have a lot of seats reserved you can go on to jabberwockystudios.org which is the Jabberwocky website and right at the top there's a slider at the top and then right under that that on the web page you can buy tickets online. 
Okay, so jabberwockystudios.org or you can also give you a call on 573-475-4618. Correct. Okay, great. Thank you so much. It's going to be an amazing evening. Ina Cook is just a wonderful. Maybe maybe we'll go out with a little bit of music from her. But thank you so much to Linda Schust and Veli Tipe. Como Africa Fest 2019. Do you want to say something, Veli? Yeah, Sorry. just one last thing. Sure. Uh, it has been cold in Colombia, so Africa Fest is bringing heat. <laughs> in the food and the culture, and because you'll be dancing so much, you'll be warm. And people, actually, at the end of the performance, Iodeli will be inviting audience members up onto the stage to dance with them as well. We did that last year, and it was wow. super fun. A lot of people got up there, so... Okay, Como Africa Fest 2019 Gala Evening will be held at the Missouri Theatre on Friday the 8th of March. That show, that evening starts at 6pm and if you have the energy, it continues into the wee hours with an African dance party at the industry. Tickets for the Gala Evening are $12 for an individual or $20 for a family. Thank you so much, Linda and Veli. Thank you. Thank and here's you. a little Ina Cook on the way out. If you want to find a true love Yeah, they might be right that's good advice Oh, change, oh, change can be tough Ooh, Welcome back. So, True False 2019 is underway and Colombia is full of film fans and documentary filmmakers from around the world, two of whom are with me in the studio. Patrick Kinney is the communications director for filmstreams.org, which owns and operates two art house cinemas in Omaha, the Ruth Sokoloff and Dundee Theatres. And Andrew Sherbourne is a multi-award winning documentary filmmaker and one of the founders of Iowa City's film scene and since 2013, a physical space scene one cinema. Andrew and Patrick, welcome back to Columbia and to Speaking of the Arts. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know you're racing off to film, so thank you so much for <laughs> fitting in a little time in the studio. So how many times have you both been to True False? Uh, this is my uh, second time, two years in a row. Okay, so you're almost a newbie. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is my sixth straight year so wow okay yeah I was thinking whether whether for this week's show because last week I had on three local fans of True False and I thought well I'll have out of towners in this week or I thought shall I have newbies people for whom (laughs) this is their first festival because it's kind of nerve-wracking I have a friend and it's her first time this year and she was saying you know I wasn't sure like how do I book the films and what if I get the wrong one and how how do I do it and (laughs) and what's and how long does it take me to get between venues so it's a a little nerve-wracking so anyway year two you feel like a pro now I suppose yeah a little bit yeah there's a I think I think I'm getting it down. <laughs> so I'm guessing that as you are both part of the cinema industry, film festivals are a regular part of your year. So what is it that stands out for you about True Falls? How is it not like the others? Well, Andrew went to about half of the film festivals uh, last year, so maybe he can answer that better than <laughs> um, Yeah, well, I was on tour uh, with a with a film, uh, Saving Brinton, a documentary film, so I did hit a lot of doc festivals last year. But True False is absolutely one of my favorite pro- probably my favorite film festival and i think for me it's it's this sense of community and the way that everything that you do in colombia over the course of a weekend is like integrated into the festival and it just feels so alive and so vibrant i mean i always tell people when i'm trying to get them to come down and join me here that it's like when you get a coffee in the morning that is like a festival activity like the the festival has begun as soon as you wake up and i just love that about Como, so. And I think for the, for those of us who live here who get involved with the festival too, even if it's just as a, a viewer rather than a, a volunteer, because there are almost a thousand volunteers that mm-hmm. make True Foss happen, it feels like 
it feels like this the kind of this giant circus is coming to town or like all your Christmases are coming to town. I mean, we count the days in our house until it's going to be true false. It's just so exciting when it rolls into town and you book your films and then the people start to arrive and you start to see people around town and you think they are not a local. There's something, <laughs> there's something extra arty about them, even though we are a very arty city. So what other, what other festivals are must visits each year? Like what compares with true false, maybe in the documentary world? Oh, uh, that's wow! That's a tough question. I mean, you've got your your big festivals, um, your Sundances in Toronto's and Tellurides and things like that. That if you want to see big films in in the doc kind of independent film world, um, I, I think there's there's like Full Frame uh, in Carolina. Um, one of my favorite festivals is the Ashland uh, Independent Film Festival out in Oregon. Uh, that's not just documentaries, but um, it's got kind of a similar feel to me. I mean, I love the kind of mid size town that like everybody goes all out for it to me it's more walkable um people are more engaged you just you feel the you know the energy of a festival the whole time so to me that's what the footprint of true false and the size of columbia i think makes it very cohesive that you don't having to get into your car and drive for miles and you do pass 10 coffee shops on your way between venues (laughs) and restaurants and so therefore you do get to see a slice of life here in town in omaha do you have any uh, film festivals that go on we have uh, the omaha film festival and then at film streams uh we also run like a local filmmaker showcase every year but uh nothing quite like this nothing that uh i mean True false feels so personal, you know, like everybody knows what's going on uh, in Omaha or in other festivals that I've been to. You know, you might have, uh, you know, somebody who's serving you lunch or who's like, you know, your cabbie might be like, uh, oh, I didn't know that was going on. <laughs> right. So as, as industry people, you obviously view the festival a little different than those of us that are just kind of ambling along to watch films. I mean, what do you get out of it from an industry point of view? Is it a great place for making contacts, renewing contacts? Absolutely, it is. But also from a programming standpoint, we do uh, end up showing quite a bit of the, uh, quite a few of the films that we see here. So it's an important way to get a leg up on the programming for the rest of the year to get ideas for things that we can show. Um, I think that's paramount for me. Now I know in Omaha you have a big education program too at the two theaters. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we have a full-time education director, Diana Martinez, PhD, shout out. Uh, I'm sure she's listening. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so what we do is we bus in high school and middle school kids. Um, we give them a free lunch. We show them some kind of substantive film. And then we lead a discussion afterward with community leaders or activists or experts. Uh, and uh, we're serving up to almost about 7,000 kids a year right now at this point. And what about in Iowa City, doing the same thing, education and film critique programs? Yeah, we've got a lot of partnership programs and kind of um, engagement opportunities where we try to, you know, get people to think after they watch the film. Um, and, and I should say, you booked us independently as guests, but I know, Patrick, because uh, films, film scene in Iowa City has kind of always looked to film streams um, as, a, as a model and inspiration. So um, we ch- we're trying to build up our education program right now. Right. Um, but we have, uh, you know, one thing that I come down here for, we have a, a series uh, this is not for the kids, but we call it uh, Vino Verite, where we take Verite filmmaking and we uh, actually have a, a sommelier watch the film and handpick wines to pair with it. And then we bring the filmmaker in and everybody just hangs out for an entire evening and, and watches the movie and talks. And uh, so Verite filmmaking, I mean, w- what better place to find new films than here at True False? Right. I did notice that I was looking on your website, Patrick, in Omaha at what films are coming up. And one of the big films this year is Apollo 11 and mm-hmm. it opens next weekend yeah, <laughs> in that's Omaha. Right. Yeah, quick turnaround. But I got to see it last night. It's incredible. It's really, we're really excited to bring it to Omaha. They said in the program that the director was there and a special guest. 
Oh, am I? There, yeah. So maybe you are the first person that can tell me who the special guest is. <laughs> there, there was an astronaut there. Well, uh, I figured who, that might who, be an astronaut. She happens to, to live here in, in Columbia. Oh, so. okay. Our local, our famous Your local, local astronaut. astronaut. Okay. Yeah. We were thinking maybe it was Buzz Aldrin. Oh, <laughs> no. That'd be big. That'd be that very would be yeah. huge. That would have been cool. Because it just says special guest. Yeah. So we were thinking, oh, my goodness, maybe it's Buzz Aldrin. So now you are both involved, I say, with cinema business and movie houses. And um, I wonder. The independent cinemas seem to be doing better than the big theatre chains. Whenever I go, very rarely, to big theatre chains, it seems like there's me and one other person in the uh, house. Whereas when I go to Ragtag, you know, you see a lot of people there. So is it difficult financially to make theatres viable in today's age when you have instant online movie gratification? How difficult is it to run a business, movie business? Well, I mean, I think uh, we both get to uh, think about programming a little bit differently and about attendance uh, as a goal a little bit differently because uh, I'm, Film Streams is a nonprofit, uh, So uh, the bottom line doesn't have to be money. So uh, we, we still can, have to pay salaries We still and have rent. to do that. We absolutely <laughs> still do. But I mean, yeah, so we go about it a little bit differently. Where how are we going to build community? Like when we are trying to drive people to a film to create attendance, uh, it's really coming at it from that way. Uh, so I do think that that then translates to better attendance overall because people yeah. feel like it's a place that they can go to for more than entertainment. Um, it's something that gives them something that they need that feeds their soul. It belongs to the community. They're part yeah. of it. Now, I mm -hmm. think you get over 50% of your income from your donors. So you have a very strong donor base. That's right. Yeah. yeah. How is it in Iowa? Yeah, we're a little bit younger. So our I think our contributed income from donors and sponsors and grants is, is in the 30%. But um, but we're similar, and we're similar to Ragtag, where, um, and that's part of like this national network um, of uh, the Art House Convergence Network of, of Art House Theaters, and many of them are nonprofit, and so they are, they do belong to the community, and they're, they have a mission, and they're community-minded, so the programming choices that are being made, it's about what does this particular community want, not what does Disney want this right. community to see, but what do we as a community want to see on our screens? Are art house cinemas in the ascendance? Are there more and more? Is it like craft beer? Is it just <laughs> <laughs> growing exponentially? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's like uh, there's a certain aesthetic that's not going away, but there's a certain um, profitability that might be dwindling. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but um, it's like... Where there's a will, there's a way, and there are more and more art house cinemas, that's for sure. Uh, the art house convergence group that we both belong to, the network of national cinemas, is growing every year. So it's, you know, it's spreading, it's working. It's really, I mean, it is a bit like craft beer, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, people want something with a little bit more flavor, and uh, I think they, they want something <laughs> out of the ordinary, um, you know, because you can sit at home and, and drink your, your macro brews all night, but right. um, if you really want some a, a unique experience, yeah, I think so. That's a good analogy. <laughs> <laughs> a little artisanal cheese on the side. That's right. <laughs> And we only serve local beers at, at our... Ditto, ditto. Yeah. yeah, I think that's probably true of Ragtag, too. They certainly yeah. have a, a lot of local beers there. I, I always think it's kind of strange. At the time when there seem to be more book clubs than ever before, mm. so people really want to get together. They want to get together and talk about this experience they've had with a book. Yet people seem to want to watch movies more and more at home. And so the art house cinema is kind of bucking that trend. Mm. Um, everybody can get things online. It's, it's You don't need to go out. But then we seem to have this cathartic need to talk about the mm -hmm. art experience we've had. And, and that's what I love about True False, that you get this Q&A afterwards, so you get to mm -hmm. voice your thoughts or questions and 
ask mm-hmm. more. And I think that's a really powerful component of the festival, which I guess you're both doing year round with the programs right. that you run. Yeah, mm-hmm. in fact, we actually have a series we call Book Club, where uh, we're, Iowa City is a UNESCO city of literature, the first one in North America. Um, so uh, we have a grand literary tradition in our town. So we actually get together and talk about the adaptation, how this book translated to the screen. So we're doubling down on like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So, Andrew, besides running a cinema business, you are also an experienced documentary maker with multiple awards and nominations for your films. Along with Tommy Haynes and J.T. Haynes, mm-hmm. you own Northland Films and your most recent documentary, Saving Brinton, played at Ragtag back yeah. in October, and you and Tommy were here in town. Tell us a little bit about that film, what it's about. Uh, Saving Brinton is a story about the discovery of a century-old film collection in a farmhouse in a small town in eastern Iowa, so between here and Iowa City. So I drove past it on my way down. It's it's a story uh, both about kind of early cinema and the way they were projected in these barnstorming tours uh, around the country in these small town opera houses. But it's also about um, the man who's at the center of that, Mike Saz, who's um, a, a collector, and he he's the one who kind of unearthed this this amazing collection um, and was compelled to bring it back to life. He's a hi- local historian. And just an all-around kind of community. He's the glue that holds that community together. So um, he, you know, endeavored to bring this back out into the world and bring it back to light. And so the film is a celebration of of his efforts, really, uh, and, and a unique person. So Frank and Indiana Brinton, with a couple that Mm -hmm. uh, had this incredible collection of films from the turn, I think 1895 to 1908, I think you mentioned as the dates in the film. That's exactly right. Uh, Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good at remembering things. And and, but it isn't only films they have. They have Mm. he he acquired this collection of pretty much all their possessions. So there's projectors and paraphernalia that go with movie showing. But beyond that, there are other items too. I mean, he just he said the week after he got married, three truckloads of Brinton uh, <laughs> possessions arrived at his house and he stuck yeah. them in the shed. And his wife was very understanding. But he spent yeah. 30 years trying to get people to pay attention to the movie content in these old metal containers that he had and what was in there. Yeah. And, and what and there were some pretty amazing finds in there. What there did he was, find? There were some amazing uh, films found in this collection, a lot of unique films that otherwise were thought lost to time, um, including two films from Georges Méliès, who uh, I think people know from A Trip to the Moon, you know, that famous, like, you know, rocket stuck in the eye of the man on the moon. And so that's his most famous film. But there were a couple of films. Um, he burned all his films in a fit of rage. So most of them are gone. Uh, well, now now many have been found. I mean, they, they were scattered around the globe. And so every once in a while, one becomes unearthed like it did in this instance. But uh, there were a lot of other films. There were 130 films in the collection, many of them unique. Um, so this is really an amazing treasure for cinephiles. But then, as you mentioned, he's got everything. He's got all of Britain's receipts and the posters and the handbills and the travel logs and everything. So you can put together, I think, really for the first time, a complete picture of what it would have been like to be showing movies uh, at the dawn of cinema. And he was showing them in small rural farming communities Mm -hmm. throughout the Midwest. So he wasn't going to major cities and throwing these. He was going to the the sides of barns and putting a projector on the side of barns and inviting the farm workers in at the end of the day to come and see these movies. This was a new medium. So can you imagine sitting in a rural county somewhere in the Midwest and suddenly seeing images of Paris and... and and that's really what it was about, is a chance to bring the world to these small communities. And, um, you know, uh, it was just an amazing opening of a door um, that these, 
you know, rural farm folk wouldn't have had the opportunity. And he never, he did come to Missouri. He never made it to Columbia because it was too big. Right. So Yeah, too established. So when I watched the film, it's much more of a, a tender and endearingly shot portrait of Mike Zars, who owns this printing collection. Then it is about the collection. The collection's in there too, yeah. but Mike Zars really comes through. He's kind of the shining star of it. So for a film to be marketable, I mean, you have to have an angle. Mm-hmm. And for you, the printing collection is it. But as a documentary maker, when you come across somebody like Mike Zars, who you know is just this incredible subject, do you sometimes have to let them go because there isn't an angle? And in, and in this case, what came first, Mike Zars or the collection? Oh, wow, that's a good question. So uh, def- I, the collection came first. I mean, I did not know Mike until I showed up at his house with a movie camera. Um, so uh, the collection came first because it was how did this come to survive 100 years in a shed in Iowa was a fascinating question to ask. Um, so we came in it the same way that most audiences do, which is, oh, wow, this is an amazing collection. And then we left the same way the audiences do with, wow, this is an amazing man. And, you know, it's it, it's interesting talking about the film and, and talking about it in the context of True False here. I mean, I think Mike and True False are doing the same thing, which is bringing people together through cinema, which is, is really what it's all about to me. The movies are great, but uh, the connections that you make with other people that's what it's all about I wish it was being shown as part of the festival that more people could see it I found it online I mean you, yeah. can, you can just rent it online from um, I think YouTube I paid or maybe Vimeo too you can see it um, yeah. and it, it is a beautiful documentary yeah it pl- we played on PBS uh, in January it'll play again at some point during the year so you can watch for it there or yeah you can find it online wherever you like to stream movies okay so I could have found it for free on PBS yeah, well, there you go. I paid you some money so. <laughs> I appreciate it <laughs> a few of those cents trickle down to my bank account so. Thank you. Yeah, probably not very many. So I was talking to a theatre director, an actor, a few weeks ago, and she said how difficult it was for her to go and watch theatre without wearing her director's hat, and she kind of wanted to jump up and, and change things. And so she tended to, like, not go to a lot of things. So I wonder whether, as documentary filmmakers, when you come to a festival like True Falls, are you squirming in your seat sometimes? Do you feel like you want to kind of give advice? And is, is it hard to watch sometimes? I suppose that, yeah, that's sometimes true. You're like, oh, I don't know about that shot selection. But I think the opposite is also true, where I see things on screen that inspire me. You know, when I think about the projects that I might have in development, I'm like, oh, you know, that might actually work um, for, you know, this project that that I'm thinking of. So to me, it's uh, coming to True False is not a chance to... uh, kind of look down and think I'm it's quite the opposite it's a humbling experience and and an inspiring experience I mean it's for Patrick I mean you spend all year working with film so it's been as we call it in England a bus man's holiday like mm-hmm. it's not much of a vacation you kind of still at work <laughs> so, yeah a little does it bit, feel yeah. like that or does uh, it... it does a little bit but I mean it's also I mean we're also seeing things that you know we were just talking about a film that we'll probably never get to show because of you know it's it's very um, non-narrative it's very uh you know, more of an art film. Um, So it'd be unlikely that, you know, it's hard to imagine where we'll get to see that. So normally I wouldn't even, you know, have time to, uh, you know, unless it's my personal time, <laughs> treat myself to something like that because I thought it was totally beautiful. So there is absolutely. What film are you talking about? Uh, it's it was Let It Burn, which I would uh, recommend. It's uh-huh. it was a really beautiful movie, but it's kind of in my programming mind. It's hard to think like where would we fit this in, and exactly who who's the audience for this in Omaha? You know, right. it's obvious who the audience is here at True False. True False. It's uh, people who love movies <laughs> and documentary films. I I like to have a strong narrative documentary um and but there seems to be a trend for more kind of ethereal leave it to the viewer 
arty films um, and it's up to the viewer to work out kind of what is going on. What are your documentary viewing preferences, Patrick? Do you like a strong narrative or do you veer towards those arty you know, I can, you can really, you can uh, send me towards something really non-narrative, really, uh, really strange out there, difficult subject matter. I can handle it. I really like that. That's sometimes, you know, uh, what I get the most out of. But yeah, I love a really well-crafted story as well. So, you know, send me, won't you, won't you be my neighbor too? You know, I'd like that yeah. uh, as well at the end of the day. As a filmmaker, I mean, I've, I've watched two of your documentaries. I haven't seen the two hockey documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> Not really my cup of tea, but you have, I mean, you're very good at directing the viewer. You have a strong narrative running through them. Uh, do you ever see yourself making a more ethereal, arty movie or or do you feel bedded into that narrative? Um, I, I think, you know, well, if you, if you, if you, you've, Watch two of my films, which puts you in like the 99.9th percentile. <laughs> so thank you. But, you know, Pond Hockey as well, they all do have a narrative. But really the narrative is a device to get to know the people. Um, so, you know, whether it's a hockey tournament or um, whether it's unearthing an old collection of cinema or whether it's, a, you know, kind of the intrusion of a, a gold mine into a small community in Guatemala, all of these are kind of major narrative elements, but really at the end of the day what i'm curious about finding and what we ho hope to bring to the viewer is, is um, a chance to get to know someone that they otherwise wouldn't know um to to meet someone on screen that they might not meet in real life i think when i when you listen to the q a's after movies a documentaries along the times one of the questions is so how did you find this person how do you know this and and that always occurs to me too as a as a filmmaker do you have this long list of things that you want to make <laughs> that you're not going to get to or are you constantly searching for the next big thing we're constantly searching for sure and and there there might be you know there are things on the list that maybe we'll get to someday and part of it is you know that there's a, a compelling subject matter or a, you know a story out there but you don't know who to follow and and that's what we're interested in, is in finding the people so there have been a few things that we've you know I guess they're still maybe cooking on the back burner um, but they're looking for a you know a central character that'll really connect with audiences last night i saw the untitled amazing jonathan documentary which is hilarious i don't know if you have it on your schedule um where <laughs> where there isn't just one docu film documentary filmmaker following the amazing jonathan it turns out there are four film crews <laughs> following the amazing jonathan and like what do you do if your director number three as he, it turned out he was not filmmaker number one and there are all these other crews turning up i'm guessing that doesn't happen very often that generally like do you have a contract with people that like if someone else comes along to Mike Zars and the Brinton collection like you've got the deal on that <laughs> yeah I guess it's maybe a little bit like wild animals right we mark our territory and no actually the, the Saving Britain one is an interesting example because we actually did um, Tommy and I had been working for a decade or more on film together but um, there was another local filmmaker who did kind of come in from a different angle and we said well let's let's share this project because I think more voices um, can can lead us to interesting places and so there were challenges with that having three filmmakers working on one project but uh yeah i think it worked out and um you know it was, it, it was fun to do does that happen often then because it seemed last night watching the amazing untitled jonathan that this must be a one-off and now yeah. in my second conversation about that i find that this happens <laughs> um, you know it does happen on occasion i mean it really depends on what you're after um i, I think some of these you know if you're talking about Mr. Rogers, I'm sure somebody else was trying to, to get that story um, or right. the Apollo 11 moon landing. I mean, some of these things are big and it's just like who can, 
you know, grab hold of it and steer it in their direction. But, you know, sometimes, you know, I think one thing, again, that's great about documentary film is you can find these small stories and elevate them to the big screen. So in those cases, usually there aren't too many people competing for a you know, a small story. The, um, True False has a fundraiser in the summer called The Boondoddle, mm. and a couple of years ago they had another film from Iowa called Strad Style oh, okay. about a, a guy who was making a Stradivarius mm-hmm. in a small farmhouse in the middle of rural Iowa. Um, another fantastic, amazing, like a little bit like Mike Zars, just this incredible mm-hmm. person. Yeah. Very quiet, not, not as community-minded as Mike Zars is, but just uh, you wonder, when you find somebody like that as a documentary filmmaker, it's such gold. Yeah. And how much you want to protect them so that you, know, you don't <laughs> find another two film crews right. coming in right. to <laughs> film them. So um, over the 11 years I've been doing Go to True Force, I find that the key for me to a successful festival is to manage my emotional roller coaster. <laughs> I like to have a little outrage and Andrew I, when I watched Gold Fever that gave me plenty of outrage your film about transnational uh, mining in Guatemala and how destructive it was to the indigenous people um, but if I go too much into inequities and human suffering I, I'm just bereft and there's no time to think because you're running from movie to movie so how do you manage your festival journey Patrick? Yeah, it is about that. I mean, when you're looking at your options, you do have to think about that. So, yeah, it's about balancing maybe like a music doc and then the extremely heavy uh, film about human rights that's going to upset you. And then, you know, something about American politics. You got to think about that because you don't want to be exhausted. That's upsetting, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be uh, exhausted. You don't want to be in a bad movie for, or a bad mood for your next movie. Right. That's something you got to think about because yeah. uh, that can cloud your uh <laughs> your impression of a movie for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely come out of movies in tears and then had to rush straight into the next one. <laughs> and you don't really process it until a few weeks right. a few weeks later. As a filmmaker, are you are you choosing films for the story or the craft or are you doing like us and just choosing an interesting journey when you look at what films you're going to go to? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Um, and I, you know, I think managing kind of uh, having a balance is important. I mean, I kicked my festival off with Aretha Franklin. I was like, there's no better way to start than with the Queen of Soul. Amazing so, Grace. Yeah, Amazing Grace. But yeah, I, I'm interested in, in seeing people that I know, filmmakers I know might push the craft uh, in an interesting way. Um, and then I'm interested in seeing, you know, films that might be the ones that are kind of upheld as the standard bearers for the year. And then hopefully try to find some things that are just completely off my radar um, and I think that's that's a, another thing that I really like about True False is that it's a small program it's one that you know is carefully curated so you can take a chance on something that mm-hmm. you've never heard of um, and, and it's usually worth your time Now Patrick I know you get invited onto local TV in Omaha to give predictions for the Oscars so as you are here in Columbia what are your predictions for what are going to be the big hits this year? Wow yeah so I think I saw one last night at the uh, Apollo 11 which is uh, you know it's coming out next week so <laughs> Uh, well, hopefully that's a big hit. Uh, yeah, Amazing Grace could be huge uh, if it's if it's handled right. Um, I think people are excited about Knock Down the House. Um, that was amazing. I saw that last night. Too. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's always you, True False does have hits. You know, it's that's why. Uh, it's good to come down here for, you know, scouting out. But now those are the big ones. Any 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 uh, guesses on sleepers, smaller films that you think are just going to grab an audience? 
Well, good. those are <laughs> that's a tough one. I'm on my way to uh, Up the Mountain, I think is what it's called, and I'm really curious about that one. Um, there's another film um, from China called uh, One Child Nation. Um, that's gonna uh, be my outrage movie. Yeah, it'll be your outrage yeah. movie, which is uh, from a filmmaker named Fu Wang, who's had a lot of success in the past. So that might be a, a smaller film that could take hold at some point. Um, American Factory is another film yeah. that's kind of on my radar. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, I think is, is talking about uh, compelling uh, topical issues in an interesting way, um, in a humorous way, I've heard. Um, so I'm excited yeah. to see that one as well. The Sundance buzz for that one is no joke either. Yeah. Is no joke? No joke, yes. Yeah, yeah. People loved it at Sundance. <laughs> oh, I see. So yeah, that's, that's got to be on my list too. Um, yeah, I think I'm really excited about, uh, there's a movie called The Grand Bazaar, yeah. uh, Jody Mack, uh, who's uh, an animator that I'm really interested in, and uh, I'm excited to see what that's about. Mm. I am, I cannot wait. I think it's later today I'm seeing Ed, uh, Mads Brugger's Cold Case. Um. I'm a big fan of Mads Brugger. The enfant terrible of Danish mm-hmm. documentary. <laughs> <laughs> there can only be one. <laughs> now, are you both here as festival goers, or have you got professional jobs while you're here? Are you doing any Q and A's? Uh, I'm not. I'm just here as a festival goer. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, up. you know, it, it's as we mentioned, it's it's pseudo professional because we're scouting films. So. Yeah. Right. Do you choose a film because of the director sometimes? Yeah, for, you have people for you sure. follow. Yeah, there's people people I, I might know personally or people um, who I admire. Yeah, and uh, um, how much of the extra stuff do you get to do? Like, are you going to go to Gimme Truth? Mm. Uh, it was already booked by the time I got my. You know, you got you got that. 90 seconds with your Lux Pass. To yeah, get you do. Thing. But I did get Campfire Stories, so I think I might do that. Okay. Uh, you should queue for Gimme Truth. Okay. Okay. I'll <laughs> give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. <laughs> Maybe you know people high up in the organization yeah. that can <laughs> help you get in. That is a hilarious evening. Yeah. Well, I know you're both rushing off to movies, so thank you so very much you for bet. being here. Patrick Kinney from Film Streams Omaha and Andrew Sherburn from Film Scene Iowa City and Northland Films. It has been a delight chatting to you both. Thank yeah, you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Enjoy you in the films and see you at the movies. Yeah. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts, and before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, we will take a whistle-stop tour of some of the arts events that are going to be vying for your attention over the next seven days. This weekend is, as we've been talking about, the 16th annual True False Documentary Film Fest. And as the fest takes over most of the venues in the city, it is dominating the art scene for the next few days. The festival got underway last night and the first films of the day start in about five minutes and continue until the wee hours today, tomorrow and Sunday. If you don't have a pass um, or you haven't bought any tickets, there is still time to get tickets. The box office is open at Sega Browdis Gallery on Walnut Street until 10pm today and from 9 till 10 on Saturday and 9 till 5 on Sunday. Tickets to film screenings are available at the box office until 30 minutes prior to the screening and they cost $12. Alternatively, if a film is marked as NRT, which means it has no reserve tickets available, you can also go and line up at the venue and get a queue number. And queue numbers are available at each venue an hour prior to the screening. Numbers from the queue will be let in and by ascending order 15 minutes prior to the screening until all the seats are filled. So queue tickets are a way to go if you don't have a ticket or it already looks like it's sold out. Tickets are $14 and you can pay for those on the door. And whether you have a ticket or not, this afternoon is the big visual launch of this year's Film Fest when the March March sets off from the Boone County Courthouse at 5.15 and when's its musical and eye-popping way down to the Missouri Theatre. 
But if documentary films are not your thing, then here are some other options for tonight and the rest of the weekend. At Columbia College, the juror for this year's 40th annual paper in particular exhibit, Eric Lutz from the St. Louis Art Museum, is giving a talk at 3pm this afternoon in Brown Hall at Columbia College. And following his talk, there will be a public reception in the Larson Gallery for the show, a paper in particular, from 5 till 7pm. Tonight is First Friday in the North Village Arts District, and that runs from 6 till 9pm. At All Street Studios, there is an opening reception for this year's All Street Movie Poster Competition, as well as a show of black and white photography by David Lancaster, featuring documentary images of street life taken in Daytona Beach, St. Louis and New Orleans. At Sega Browder's Gallery, the March exhibit will be on display with works by Sophia Bonatti, Sean Lyman, Sarah Post, Amy Putansu and Grace Ramsey. At Resident Arts, there is an opening reception for an exhibition of works by artist Rachel Trusty called Friends and Lovers. And at the Dogwood Artist Workspace, Sarah Arigada is showing her current work encompassing abstract oil and acrylic paintings on small-scale hand-sewn canvases. Violet and the Undercurrents will be doing an acoustic set at Hit Records at 6 this evening and an album signing for the release of thir- their, sorry, their third album called The Captain. And at Artlandish Gallery, you can hear live music all evening, plus Centro Latino will be on hand with tamales and vegan wraps. And after a busy weekend of theatre last weekend, this weekend there is only one production going on. Columbia Entertainment Company's production of the romantic comedy Almost Maine is in its final weekend. The performance starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $14. And at Rose Music Hall, you can catch Happy Hour from 5pm onwards tonight with the fried crawdaddies. And at 9pm, Mountain Sprout takes to the stage along with 2-Bit Steve. And tickets for their show are $8. On Saturday, there are all sorts of art strolls and live music to take in, even if you're not partaking of any of the True False documentaries. It's a fun time to be downtown and just hang out in a coffee shop and watch people pass by. At Rose Music Hall on Saturday night, there is a True False after party with Puerto Rican Electro-Afro-Caribbean Project Ife, plus R&B Soul Voyagers Mason Jinx and St. Louis's Tonina. Tickets are $8.00. And it's open to everybody, whether you're going to True False or not. And uh, it is free entry for some True False Pass levels and also the Juggernaut volunteers. At two o'clock on Sunday afternoon at Daniel Boone Regional Library, Crazy Horse family elder Floyd Clown Sr. will join author William Matson to discuss their book, Crazy Horse, The Lakota Warrior's Life and Legacy, which is based on the family's oral history. On Tuesday night at Jesse Hall, Celtic or Celtic Nights presents Oceans of Hope, the epic journeys of our ancestors. An evening of music, song and dance about the essence of Irish history with audiences taken on a journey through the struggles and dreams of its people. Tickets start at $20 and that show starts at 7. At the Missouri Theatre, Dr. Tererai Trent, internationally recognised author and humanitarian, will give a talk on issues of social justice at 6.30, followed by a book signing of her book, The Awakened Woman, and that'll be at Skylark Bookshop following her talk. And Montana acoustic band Lil Smokies play with Michigan Rattlers at Rose Music Hall next Tuesday. Tickets for their show are $12. And finally, next Thursday, Nashville artist Tyler Farr is at the Blue Note along with North Carolina's Josh Phillips. And tickets for that show are $25. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxett, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.